That is very bright right there. We're going to have to figure this out. I might. We'll see. I got roped into playing hockey two games yesterday, and so if I have to sit, that'll be why. Well, welcome here this morning. I can't see you. There we go. Welcome uh, to Banff Park Church. It's our pleasure to have you here with us uh, worshiping this morning. Um, just real quick before we get started, you can open to 1 Timothy. We're going to be spending the next uh, couple of months going through 1 Timothy, and I'll explain this all in just a minute. But just before that, uh, I just want to say thank you. I didn't get a chance uh, the last couple of weeks with a seminary and vacation and stuff, us being away. Uh, but we had a, a challenging few weeks, uh, and, and many of you came alongside of us and really, really helped us in many different ways, and it was incredible, and uh, just thank you so much. Being part of Banff Park Church family is incredible. As, as Lee said, it, it is a family, and actually you're going to hear um, what our goal is um, from a leadership standpoint moving forward as a church family, because our, our greatest desire is that our church would become so tight-knit, so close that we can just trust and depend on each other at all times. So let me pray really quickly, and then I'll explain what we're going to do here as we go through First Timothy. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are worthy of all of our praise. God, as we open up your word, as we read your very words written to us, the only words that we know to be completely true, that have authority because they come from you and they're spoken directly to us. May, they, may those words impact our hearts and our minds. Would they not just be things for our understanding in an intellectual way, but may they change the way that we choose to live our lives. So God, thank you for specifically First Timothy this morning. May you Use it to speak to us in ways that we need to hear. Amen. So like I mentioned, over the next couple of months here, we're going to be going uh, through 1 Timothy. But this series uh, is really a series on discipleship. We are going to unpack for you in the next couple of weeks. And, and by about week three or week four, depending on how long it takes us to get there, we're going to actually unmap or unroll for you uh, a discipleship plan that from a board level we've been discussing for a number of months now. And we're going to actually unroll it so that everyone who calls Banff Park Church their home can understand what this looks like. And our goal is that by the end of this series, that every single one of you will be in a discipling relationship with somebody in the church. Uh, we want to be a church that values discipleship. We want to be a church that disciples disciples so that disciples can continue to disciple and so it can just continue to spread and continue to grow. This is how we read scripture. This is how we understand what the goal of the church is meant to be. And so we don't want to just talk about it, but we want to actually instill in us a way to do it. However, we want to do it in a way that where it's not some big fancy program so that you write your name down on this big list and then we, and then we map out everything for you to do. That's not the goal. The goal is that we would learn to be able to mentor one another very intentionally so that we grow in our faith. And I think more often than not, the reason that we don't do this is because we have this 
wrong assumption of what it means to disciple each other. We think that we have to get to a certain level of, of spiritual maturity or we have to get, uh, we can no longer deal with sins in our lives, but we've got to have that stuff figured out and sorted out before we can enter into something like that. And all that does, all that does is give us an unreasonable expectation of what it means to disciple one another and then we give up before we even start. Is every single one of us still has, well, let's just say it this way, life is messy, isn't it? For all of us. We all have struggles, we all have difficulties, we all have specific issues in our lives that, that we have to work at and we, and we know and we read in Scripture and we pray and we try and deal with these things, but we're never going to become perfect this side of heaven. And so if we can recognize that about ourselves and then go, I don't need to be perfect to enter into a discipling relationship with somebody, I just have to be intentional. And so we're going to give you some tips and some strategies about how to do that. Uh, and I'm going to unroll the kind of the big master plan for you in the next coming weeks here. But basically, it's just it's going to be very simple and it's going to be very organic. And it's just going to be in this way where we very intentionally sit down with one or two other people and we just start to figure out how can we grow in our faith? How can we learn to read the Bible more effectively? And how can we fall in love with Christ more? Because that is what our role is as Christians, is meant to be. So why did we pick 1 Timothy? Well, 1 Timothy, uh, scholars actually call 1 Timothy a mentoring manual between Paul and Timothy. That's kind of what it's referred to as often. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through, and we're going to take section by section and unpack what's happening and, and why Paul is writing to Timothy, what he's trying to say to Timothy, and how he's choosing to disciple him so that we can see it so that we can see the practical, everyday value of discipling someone, and so that we can just see that it's actually very simple. It just requires some effort. But it's not something where, it's not like you have to take a test and get to a certain level and, and then you're okay. It just means living life authentically and vulnerably and willing to share with one another the things that we're going through so that we can help and pray for one another. So let me just give you a, a little bit of context here to 1 Timothy before we actually read it. So Timothy is, is a very unique character in the Bible. Uh, Paul comes uh, alongside Timothy in Acts uh, chapter 16. is the first time we kind of meet Timothy. And Paul is on his second missionary journey. And he's kind of going from place to place, establishing, developing churches. And, and he comes across this guy, Timothy. And, and Timothy is this young man who is, who is filled with the Spirit, but who is just, he has desire to reach out to people, to share them who, to share with them who Christ is. And, and Paul sees in him a maturity that's kind of beyond kind of what his age would be. And so Paul decides, man, I want to invest in this person. And so Paul does that. And, and some of it we don't have uh, written in Scripture. Some of it is just uh, alluded to. Uh, some of it we read in Acts 16 and 20, and some of it we read in 2 Timothy a little bit, and we learn a little bit more about who Timothy is. But what we're going to read here this morning is you're going to see that, that Paul views Timothy as a son. And of course, there's no biological connection between them, but per perhaps in your own family you have this, where you have somebody that you consider family that's not really family. We have several people in our family like this who, who Smonga calls uh, auntie and uncle or, or that kind of a thing, that there's no actual biological relationship to, to us even. But they're friends, they're people that we have, um, 
worked with and done ministry with, that we have grown so close together that we trust them implicitly. And that's what's happening here with Paul and with Timothy. Um, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul, uh, excuse me, that Timothy doesn't actually have uh, a spiritual father, but that he was raised kind of by his grandmother and his, and his mother, at least in as far as spiritual goes, but it, his father was a, was a Greek uh, Gentile. And so Paul looks at this as an opportunity where he can invest in him and he can mirror the relationship that God has called us to have with our own children, that he can become the spiritual father to him and that he can help him on his journey to maturity. Now just before we read this, let me, let me say this as well. There's a research group called the Barna Research Group. And what they do is spiritual things, uh, different questions they have. They go through all the United States and they research uh, and find statistics for us. And what they found is the vast majority of people have never been discipled by anybody. And yet, that almost that identical percentage all said they wish they would have been. And so we have this need where we, we have so many people, it was in the vast, we're looking like 85 to 90% of people that said they were never discipled by someone. And then they all said, but we wish we would have. And so if that's the reality, then we want to become a church that does that. And so that is the goal as we go through this. So let's open First Timothy here. We're going to read the first 11 verses together, and then we're going to unpack that a little bit. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make conf confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There's a lot that we're going to look at here um, in this, but the greeting is something that we kind of typically overlook, but there's a couple of things in this greeting that are very important. So the first thing you see in verse 1 is it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. God has commanded this of Paul. Now, as far as this morning goes in our text here, that's not really all that relevant. But as we get to chapter 3, and as we deal with the qualifications for elders and for deacons, uh, this is going to become huge. And so I just want to highlight that, just to note that, that this is very important. All the words that are written here, they are from God for us, and not one of these words is filler. All of it has meaning. All of it has importance. All of it has significance. And so we're going to look at that in a few weeks. The other thing that's really important is verse 2. To Timothy, my true 
child in the faith. So again, Paul views this relationship with Timothy as his spiritual father, as someone who is teaching him to mature, teaching him how to fall more in love with Christ, teaching him doctrine, teaching him what's right and what's true, encouraging him, appointing him to this very specific task in the church in Ephesus. And so we have these two things. One of them is that Paul's just trying to encourage Timothy by calling him this, my true child in the faith. Just just imagine Paul, who is the one who's planting all these churches in the known world at that time, and he writes you a letter, and he calls you his true son in the faith. That's got to give you encouragement. That's got to give you a, a certain sense that he believes in you and that, and that you know that, that he has your back and that he cares for you. So there's that. But the second part of that that's important is that this letter wasn't a letter written specifically to Timothy only to be read by Timothy. This was a letter that was written to the church in Ephesus that was to be read in the entire congregation. And so not only is Paul trying to do a personal greeting to Timothy and trying to say to him, you know, I, I believe in you, Timothy. You, you can do what God has called you to do, and I'm going to help you in that process. Not only is he saying that, he's also publicly exhorting to the congregation that Timothy is worth listening to. Timothy is one who you can trust. He is one that you can submit to in leadership because, and he starts to lay out all these reasons why as we go through this. But So that's why I think the greeting is so important to us. Um, Matt Moore, a theologian, said it this way. He says, Paul's writing to Timothy so that we, that's all of us, will become the best apologetic, the best demonstration of the gospel. When we live out being the household of God as a pillar and a buttress of the truth, that's the goal. And so perhaps when you read through a short letter like this, you kind of want to know what's the main point. We'll flip ahead real quick to chapter 3. And I'm just going to read two verses for you because this summarizes the book. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's why Paul's writing to Timothy. He wants to come. He wants to explain. He wants to show him, here's, here's the correct way to live, and here's what the church should look like, and here's how we should interact within the church. But if I can't make it, this is why I'm writing this to you. So if you think of it in the context for us now, is this letter is written to us so that we might understand how we can live the most effective life possible so that people in the world can see Christ in us. It's a manual for us of how to live to show Christ as who he is. And so for us, it's equally as important to read. So he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So what's happened, and we don't know the specifics of this, a couple of people are named at some point in the letter, but it certainly goes beyond that, is there's people that have kind of crept in, and they're starting to teach things that aren't quite right. 
And, and somehow this has gotten back to Paul, and he's, he's heard about this, and he's learned this, and so now he's commanding Timothy, don't let people teach some of these things, because by that teaching, they're wandering off into things that don't matter. Let me say it to you this way. Anyone ever been to a congregational meeting? It's like your favorite day of the year, right? Like you mark it on your calendar, and you can't wait, and make sure you have a babysitter, and... Or you make sure that you don't have a babysitter so you don't have to go. Um, no, we should always go. But so often I've been part of those meetings where something is brought up that has nothing to do with anything. So here's an example. Not that I'm suggesting this is what's going to happen. But if it does, you know, you've been warned. The carpets. Man, it's time to replace the carpets, isn't it? And somebody gets up in the congregation meeting and explain why the carpets are coming and, and here this is going to be priced. And people start panicking and, and there's a fight over it and, 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 no, and the church splits and that's it. Could there be anything more ridiculous to argue over? Maybe there could be, but there's lots of things where we get focused on that have nothing to do with anything. And here he's saying there's people that are, that are going back into Genesis to deal with genealogies and they're getting so stuck in, well, this person from this person, this line and this line, so this means this, and they're ignoring everything that's important and that is central to their faith in Christ. How guilty are we of that? There's so many times, and I'm speaking only of myself here, where I get caught up in some of these little tiny issues and I create them, I, I make them into something so much bigger than they need to be. A few years back, what I decided how I was going to teach changed because what I realized was there are things, there are cultural things that pop up from time to time that we have to deal with. However, when we, that's, if that's all we do is we deal with, well, this is here now, so we've got to deal with this, and this is here now, we've got to deal with this, and we ignore the Word of God, we're always going to be dealing with issue after issue after issue because they won't ever end. Because like we said at the beginning, life is messy for all of us. There's always difficulty. There's always challenge. But if we can study the Word of God and if we can read through and we can figure out what God's trying to teach us and what God's trying to say and how He's revealing Himself to us, then we will start to see what is true and what is right. And when false teaching comes in, we'll be able to spot it for what it is. We'll be able to see it because we know what's true and what's right. I remember reading an article a number of years ago about counterfeiters and how those people who were, who were to examine so that they know whether uh, a bill is a correct bill that actually has monetary value, whether it's a counterfeit, is not by studying counterfeits, but is by studying what is true and what's right. They look at what is, and there's all these different ways. And it's actually quite an interesting thing if you look it up. There's all these different kind of uniquenesses to a bill that make it authentic. And for them, they study that so that they can see it, every little, pit of, every little bit of it, every little intricate piece of it, so that when a counterfeit comes across, they know this is wrong because it's missing this part. And in the same way for us, when we know Scripture, when we understand who God is because we've studied what God has said about who He is, then it becomes clear to us. And then when these false teachings come in, we can understand that. We can say, no, 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 we shouldn't focus on some of these genealogies and some of these issues because all, all they're doing is they're bringing about speculation rather than anything that's helpful. 
So let's focus on what's true and what's right and what's good. Now again, that doesn't mean we don't have to deal with certain issues that come up. We do. But we deal with them from a context of what Scripture teaches us, what is good and what is right. So let me read to you the differences here. Commentator Ray Van Nest says it this way. He talks about the contrasts between what is good and what is false. And he says this, The results of false teachers is speculation. It's vain discussion. While the result of true teaching is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The focus of false teaching led to swerving and to wandering, while the focus of true teaching was steadfast aim. Regarding the law, the advocates of false teaching were teaching without understanding, while the advocates of true teaching had correct knowledge. And you can kind of see that through verses 3 to 7. Here's what false teaching is doing. Here's what it's causing, and here's what's happening. But Timothy, here's what you should be doing. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. He says that everything that we need for life and godliness comes from God in his word. Everything that we need. And so as we study through scripture, we learn who God is, and we start to have a correct uh, compass as to what is important and what needs to be dealt with. And I'll just give you a little spoiler alert. The color of the carpet, not a central issue in the Bible. Our hearts, the aim, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the goal. And so when we see something that needs to be corrected, if we're correcting it because we want to prove that they're wrong and we're right, we're already wrong. If our goal is when we see something happening in the church or, or in another brother or sister's life uh, and we know something's wrong and we go to them because we, we, we care so much about them and we love them so much that we say, this is dangerous, would you please come back to the truth? Then we're of the right. And we, I should say, we and God are the only ones that know our motives. And so for us, that's what, that's what Paul's telling Timothy. He's saying there's teaching that is wrong that needs to be dealt with. However, deal with it with a pure heart. Deal with it in a way that you, you love them, that you want them to come back. You see, even in Matthew, when we read about kind of Jesus' model for church discipline for us, all of that is meant to be restorative, always. Now, sometimes it can't be, and that's a reality of life. You can't make anybody do anything. But the reality of Scripture is that all of it exists for us to grow in unity together as the body of Christ because we are his bride and we represent him to the world. So Tim, Paul is telling Timothy, as this teaching comes in, make sure to deal with it. Don't ignore it, but deal with it in a way that shows love, care, concern, be genuine. says they've wandered away to vain discussion. And that's the one thing that, I shouldn't say it that way, that's one of the things that we want to be very careful of. We do not want to have discussions that have no relevance in our life. We want to have discussions that are based on how can I become more like Christ because that influences every aspect of my life and how I live. Paul's reminding Timothy that true biblical teaching ultimately leads us to Christ-likeness. 
And so in any gathering that we have, as we read through Scripture, as we study the Bible, um, whatever the avenue is, whether it's just a, a marriage group that you're meeting with or, or whatever it is, if at the end of it you haven't learned how to become more Christ-like, then we've missed the point. We have to, everything has to go back to how am I to become more like Jesus today? That's our goal, and that's the purpose. Now, another thing that's really interesting is when you consider uh, the false teaching that that happens, and, and this is varied all across. Um, all, all you got to do is look up, you know, just go to Google and type any kind of theology in, and you'll start to see all kinds of weird things that are being taught all over the place. Again, if we understand true, correct theology from Scripture, we can kind of spot the lie. But we have to be able to spot it. And so here's one of the things that's probably done the most damage, at least in our, um, in our culture, in our generation, is the prosperity gospel has done incredible amounts of damage. The prosperity gospel is not about Jesus Christ, which is funny because what is the gospel? The very translation of the gospel is the good news. The good news of what? The good news of Christ. The good news that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins because we were guilty. That's the gospel. The gospel is not what you can get or what you think you're entitled to have based on. And so the prosperity gospel is focused not on God, but focused on ourselves. Not based on the cross of Christ, not based on the sufferings of Jesus, which according to Paul of Philippians, we are to share in but it's based on the things that I get from it. If there's a benefit to you in, when you think of the gospel, if there's a benefit that is more important to you than eternal salvation, then you've misunderstood the gospel. Which is more important? To have a big bank account or to be in heaven with Christ forever? When Paul's writing in, in Philippians and he's kind of struggling with this idea of seeing that his time is kind of coming to an end. Instead of being disappointed about it, he's excited. Because he says, it is far better that I depart and go be with Christ. Because nothing in this world tied him down. Nothing in this world held his focus and his attention like Jesus Christ did. So nothing mattered. You could beat him, you could torture him, you could imprison him, you could leave him for dead, and all he did was go, praise the Lord, I get to go be with Christ. See, in our culture, I think, while the prosperity gospel has done a lot of damage, materialism has probably done even more in our culture. Where we know, okay, the prosperity aspect, that movement, that's wrong. But materialistically, we've become really tied to the world. And again, I'm just going to speak for myself here because I don't want to point fingers. But you know what I really, really hate? I really hate how much I love money. I know it's wrong. And I fight that all the time. But there are so many things in this life that we look at and we go, oh, if only I had or could or would go or whatever it might be. And money always seems to be the thing that's inhibiting that. And so you get frustrated and you look at all these things. When I understand the gospel correctly, I understand this, that every single thing that I have is a gift from God. And if I get, if I lose my job and I have no money, then somehow that is a gift from God. 
I don't know how to wrestle some of those things through all the time. But I know that God cares more about me than I care about me. And I know that he cares more that I understand his will for my life more than my own desire for my own will. And so God will do whatever he has to to get a hold of me. And so for me to look at my life and to go, everything is a gift from you. And so regardless of whether I have much or whether I have nothing, as Paul says, I will learn to be content with that. See, what Paul's doing to Timothy, through doctrine, through teaching, through understanding, is to get him to focus on what the gospel is. And when people come in and they shift and distort and change the gospel, we need to correct that. But we need to correct that not because... God is incapable of defending himself. But because we are called to love each other desperately, we are called to lead each other back to Christ. And this is the purpose of the church. Otherwise, we could just do this on our own. Otherwise, we could just listen to podcasts. And and I'll say this very simply. There's a lot of better teachers on the internet than me. And you could gladly just sit at home and listen to podcasts. And you probably should. You probably should listen to other teaching and other preachers as well. But as Hebrews tells us, is do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because when we gather together and when we proclaim Christ's name and when we study together and when we converse together about Scripture, that's when Christ is glorified. Because he sees what his desire is for the church, that we would gather together as a team united in purpose and focus and in mission. And what is our mission? We're going to read it in just a few minutes in Matthew 28. But before we get there, kind of got out of order here. Verse 8. Verse 8 is a very interesting thing. And 8 to 11, in fact, is, is quite interesting because Paul says this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And then he kind of unpacks this this very generic. He's not cherry-picking specific things. He's actually dealing with uh, the Ten Commandments. He actually deals with six, seven, eight, and nine in order. And I think that's very interesting. But Paul's view of the law is, is, is somewhat interesting here because if you read through Romans, Romans basically entirely exists for Paul to say that the law is insufficient for you to find salvation. So if the law is insufficient to find salvation, then why does he say that the law is good here? The commentators Leah and Griffin ask this question in their commentary. They say, what is the right use of the law? The theologians have summarized three uses for the law. First, the Bible resembles a locked door to restrain individuals from trespassing onto the wrong territory, which is Romans 7, 7, Psalm uh, 19:13. Second, the law resembles a mirror to reveal sin and lead us to Christ, Romans 3, 19 and 20, Galatians 3, 24. And thirdly, the law serves as a rule and a guide to point out the works that please God, Romans 13, 8 to 20. So it's the second and the third thing that I want to deal with, which is really interesting. The the second one that they say is that the law exists so that we would see our sinfulness. So Paul says this in Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. See, what the law does is the law shows us our depravity. When we read through the Old Testament, we read through the standard that God had. So if you think of it this way, is if you could follow every law that God ever gave you perfectly, then you would get to go to heaven. Well, the law shows that we cannot do that. 
even just, even just, and there's way more, but even just going to Exodus 20, reading through the Ten Commandments and going, oh yeah, I've kept all of those, no problem. You're already lying. You've already broken what you just said you haven't broken. Is all of us are guilty of that. If you've ever had a child, you know that so much more innately. You don't have to teach them to do what's bad. You have to teach them to do what's good because they want to do what's bad. They want to disobey. It's, it's just the sin nature is so evident within us and the law exposes our guilt before God. However, if that's all it does, then God's not a very loving, merciful God. That wasn't the only point of the law. This third thing that they say, third, the law serves as a rule and guide to point out the works that please God, not for salvation. Salvation has been offered only in the person of Jesus Christ. But how are we supposed to honor and please God if we don't know how to do that? If God says, these are the things that please me, these are the things that honor me, these are the works that you can do that show what you claim to feel, then shouldn't we do those things? If God says to us, all life has value because I've created it, God's saying, I've created life in my image, all of it has value, so don't kill each other. Well, one of the ways in which we honor God is by looking at that and saying, all life has value. So we can, and this is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, we can assume that that means as long as I don't kill anybody, then I'm okay. But Jesus clarifies and he says, no, even if you hate someone, you've already committed murder in your heart. Because I've created them and they're created in my image and they have just as much value and just as much worth as you. And you have no right to say that they don't have value. And so how we treat other people, do we treat them with respect or do we cut them down? Because what Paul just said to Timothy is that, well, let's read it one more time. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what we're called to do. And so how do we do that? Well, by keeping the law. Not because the law brings us salvation, because it's abundantly clear the law cannot do that. In fact, it says in Scripture, uh, in Hebrews, that it was insufficient to bring salvation. There was another way needed, but that way was mapped out right from the beginning. Right from the beginning in Genesis, we read about this, this plan that God has for sin to be dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of his death on the cross, our sins are paid for. And so when he paid for those sins, we now can be found innocent instead of guilty because of that. But not only that, he rose from the dead showing that death is not the end. That when we die, if we die having confessed Christ as Lord, that we're guaranteed. It says in John that that it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Excuse me, in Ephesians. That it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That when we come to Christ, we are given the Spirit and we are guaranteed eternity with Christ in heaven. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. But now we have a choice. Am I going to mature or am I not? If Christ gave his life for me and I understand that and then I offer Christ nothing in return, then do I really understand it? But if I offer him my life and I say, God, I want to honor you and I want to please you, not because, not because I need to earn my salvation, because that was a gift given by you on the cross, but I want to honor you because I want to, I want to give you everything because you gave everything to me. 
So Paul actually, if you read through um, most of Paul's letters, you get the sense that he's trying to teach, uh, and predominantly he teaches to the Gentiles, so the people without the law, but you get the sense that he's trying to teach and show them that you don't have to follow the law for salvation. That only comes through Christ. But you also get the sense over and over that Paul really, really loved and respected the law because of what it did. It brought him an understanding of how to please God. Now, once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he learned that everything everything that he thought was a misunderstanding of what was true and what was right. And all through the rest of the New Testament, we see here's how Paul wants to live. Here's how he wants to express his love to God. I came across this from Kay Larson, and I thought this was just a beautiful way to explain the gospel. It says this, The gospel, the good news that is Jesus. Jesus suffered in our place. He died a death reserved for lawbreakers, expressing the condemnation of the law on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It's Galatians 3.13. Because of this, Christ offers forgiveness if we admit our inadequacy to live by God's righteous standards. Acknowledge that we are lawbreakers and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness and accept before God, sorry, an acceptance before God who is holy. See, Paul's desire to Timothy is, Timothy, you need to go and correct this doctrine. This is, this is the first theme that comes through 1 Timothy. You have to correct this because it's wrong. But you have to care more about the people than about the correction. Because if you're correcting without any love, then you're not correcting. You're just telling them they're wrong and you're right. We need people. We need people in our lives who are willing to confront us when we're wrong, when we do things that are inappropriate, when we say things that aren't with the way that we believe the scriptures to hold us to. And so if we are in relationship with people who will disciple us, they will come alongside of us and they'll say, and they'll say to me, Greg, you said this, you did this, this is wrong. I need that. You need that. We all need that. Why do we need that? This is going to sound really bad, but it's just true. It's because as people, we're super arrogant. And we always think we're right. It's just, that's just the reality. Even, let's just say it this way, you're having an argument with your spouse. Halfway through that argument, you realize you're wrong. Do you stop there, right there all the time? I hope we do. Sometimes we just want to argue at that point. We're just angry. We're just upset. We're not living the way that Christ has called us to live, and we need people in our lives to come to us bravely and in love and to help us understand how we need to grow and mature. And if we don't have people doing that, our maturity is going to go so slow. It's going to be so slow. And so that's why we as a church want to be a church that disciples one another, not because we think any one of us is greater than anybody else, but because we think that all of us need all of us. We all need each other to grow. I just want you to flip to Matthew 28. 
it's like I said earlier. We're called for purpose. And when we come to faith in Christ, there is a commission that's given. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives this commission. We call it the Great Commission. But he didn't just commission 12 individuals to go and do this. He commissioned everyone who calls Jesus their, their Savior. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to read together verses 18, 19, and 20 because this commission was written not just for 12 people, but this was written for all of us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, this is what we're all commissioned to do. So let's read this together, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God, you have written these words to us. You have commissioned us to go and to make disciples. And that doesn't ever happen accidentally. It's a choice that we have to make. And so God, would you help us to be a church that values discipleship? Help us to be a church that disciples others. And so, God, as we study through 1 Timothy and as we read Paul investing into Timothy's life and giving him direction in how to do this, would we internalize it in our own hearts and our own minds? And would we realize that you have not called us to have a big house with lots of money, but you've called us to disciple others. Everything that you have given us is a gift from your hands. We are so grateful for all the gifts that we have, whether, whether sometimes we deem it to be little or much. But God, would you help us stay focused on the true reality that our goal is to bring honor to you by discipling others because you have called us to do that. So God, I pray that in the coming weeks that we would take seriously this call to go and disciple others. God, for those in this room who are nervous about that, who, who feel unqualified to do that or, or even incapable of doing that, God, I pray that as we study through the, these verses in the coming weeks that we would realize we are unqualified, we are incapable, but you are not. And that you will empower and that you will help us to do the commission that you have called us to do. You have not called us to do this and then left us alone, but you are actively participating with us in it. So God, I pray that we would do this. God, thank you for each one who has come here this morning. God, we don't know. We hardly know our own hearts. So God, it's hard to even imagine what people are going through. And so God, for those who are here this morning who are going through difficulty, sickness, pain, doubt, frustration, debt, whatever it might be, whatever is causing them difficulty this morning. God, I pray that you would be at work in their lives and in their hearts. That you would show them the depth of your love. That you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross 
because of your love for each one of us. God, thank you for everyone who calls Banff Park Church their home. I pray that you would encourage them, that you would help them to see seriously what discipleship is meant to be. God, thank you for all our brothers and sisters around the world. We are all part of this one family. Would you unite us together in purpose that we might reach the world for Christ, that we might disciple one another. God, we love you. Would you just go with us this week? Amen. Again, if you're visiting this morning, uh, there's no rush to run off. There are snacks and, and goodies and stuff. That's the same thing, but they're through that door. Uh, and, and just take your time in